In chapter 11 of the book of Acts, we are continuing to see the church expand. Gentiles first come to the church and we saw that the Romans in Caesarea by the sea first got saved. They were the very first Gentiles. This is a few years into the establishment of the church and up to this point, it's been all Jews who have been saved. Now, for the first time, we see a group of Gentiles come to Christ outside of Israel. Caesarea Maritime, or by the sea, is still in Israel. Those Roman Gentiles that got saved were the first ones, but now we're going to see Gentiles getting saved outside of Israel. Uh, also, the first time that we see Gentiles and Jews in the same church. This is God's plan, that the walls of separation between Jews and Gentiles would be broken down. In their day, Jews would not meet with Gentiles and Gentiles would not meet with Jews, but that's going to change in the church in Antioch. Listen to what Paul writes in, the Ephes in Ephesians 2.14. He says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, Jews and Gentiles he's referring to, has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Those who have refused to mingle together are now going to mingle together. They're going to become a church together doing the work that God has told them to do. The title of our message today is The Church Expands Outside of Israel. We're in chapter 11. We're about 10 years after the resurrection. And finally, we see a significant number of Gentiles getting saved. Now, I have a second title as well, and that is First Called Christians Explained. In our text, we're told that in Antioch, that we are first called Christians and we want to talk about what the word Christian means. And I think you're going to be a little bit surprised when you find out exactly what that word is and what it really means. Now, let's take a look at our text. First of all, Acts 11, 19. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. First of all, God used this persecution in the early church. It started with Stephen and they laid their clothes at the, at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul. And Saul started a persecution and this persecution caused the church to expand. God used it for his good. God uses difficulties in our lives for good as well. I've been a Christian for 50 years. I've had a lot of struggles, a lot of difficulties, a lot of hardships, and God has used them in my life. We do it as well. I was thinking about when a young man joins the Marines or when a young man joins the Army, that they, uh, the, the Marines never, they don't go, we want you guys to have a really good experience while you're here. So we're just going to come alongside of you and let it be comfortable. We hope that by the time that this is done, no, they make it as hard as they can for them. And when you see so, a young man go through it, he goes in one way, but he comes out another way because the hardship has developed character within most of those individuals. God uses difficulties in our lives because he doesn't want us just to be coddled Christians. God's not like, I want you to have the best experience as a Christian that you can possibly have. God wants us to be soldiers in the kingdom of God. God wants us to do the work. And so God takes us through things that build character and that do the work. And that's what we see here. There was a persecution. And so it went to these three areas. Now, what are these three areas? We have Phoenicia, 
Cyprus, and Antioch. Right above Israel is the region of Phoenicia. They've been there for about 3,000 years. So it's longstanding. So when they left Israel, they pushed up the coast in the, of the Mediterranean towards what would be the turn in Turkey today, Asia Minor in their day, and that's Phoenicia. The gospel went into Phoenicia. Cyprus, you're familiar with, right? Once you get to Phoenicia, you go out into the Mediterranean Sea and there's an island there called Cyprus. It's in the same region. And then you go back to the coast and up a little bit and you come to the city of Antioch. Antioch is a big city. It's got a river that runs through it. It, 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 it has a lot of Romans that are there. It is a Hellenistic city. The word Hellenistic simply means they are adopting Greek culture. That's what Hellenistic is. And when Alexander the Great conquered the world, he planted Greek cities everywhere. He wanted to make cities take on Hellenism, and he did that. And the language around the world became a common language, which was Greek. And I think that's part of why Christ came when he did, because not only were there Roman roads that brought people around the world, but there was the Greek language that the New Testament could be written in and the gospel could be shared all around in this Greek language. And so Antioch, 500,000 people live there. Rome during this time had a million people that lived there. So you have 500,000 people that are there. This is a significant city. There's gonna be a lot that is able to be done in Antioch. And it says that um, persecution arose and they went to, to Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. For about the first, it's hard to really tell exactly how many years, somewhere between seven and 10 years after the resurrection of Christ, it was only Jews who were getting saved. And in these regions, they'd only gone to Jews. They were Jews. They thought Christianity was a sect of Judaism. You're receiving the Messiah. That Gentiles would get saved was a shocking thing to them. We've been covering that with these Romans, uh, Cornelius, the centurion, who gets saved in Caesarea. So they've only bought more going to the Jews. But some of them who were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who were, who when they heard, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenist, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Now this term for Hellenist is Hellenistic Gentiles. And some, there's some argument within scholars that this term Hellenist means Hellenistic Jews. But, there's, but we've already had Hellenistic Jews in the church. Go all the way back to the first dispute that there was in the church. Remember that the Hebraic widows, excuse me, the Hellenistic widows were claiming that they were not being taken care of like the Hebraic women were. The Hebraic women were, 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 the Hebraic Jews were Jews that didn't embrace Hellenistic culture. They stayed with Jewish culture. And then the Hellenist Jews were ones that had embraced Greek culture. And so somehow the Hellenist Jewish widows thought they weren't being cared for. And so they came to the apostles and complained. And remember, the apostles said, we don't want to leave the word of God and serve tables. Nothing wrong with serving tables. They just knew what their, their position was that God had given them. So they said, look for seven men full of the Holy Spirit who are wise, who can lead this. And do you remember the seven men they chose? They were seven with Greek names. Stephen was one of them, the first martyr of the church. Philip was another one that we followed him as he brought the Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord. These were Hellenistic Jews. 
So the term here, Hellenistic, is used in antiquity to speak of Hellenistic Jews and Hellenistic Gentiles. They, do, they didn't hang on to their culture. They embraced the Greek culture. So now they've gone to those who are Hellenistic, and these are Gentiles that are coming to the Lord. This is why we get what follows here. When it says, um, he spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed. Then verse 22. The news of these things came to the elders in the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to go to Antioch. Now, Barnabas is a leader in the church. He's not one of the 12 apostles, but he's a leader in the church. And they, they, they're like, we've got a bunch of Gentiles who are saved now, and we've got to get Barnabas up there to check things out. Now, you guys remember Barnabas. We've been introduced to him already. We're going to see him more in the book of Acts. I want to read you when we first met him in Acts chapter 4 when he sold a piece of property and he gave that to those who were impoverished in the area. And so here's what it says. It says, and Joseph, now that's the word Joseph. So his name was Joseph. It wasn't Barnabas. And, and Joseph, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated the son of encouragement. So what did the apostles do? They saw that Barnabas was such an encourager that they gave him the nickname Barney. Barnabas, son of encouragement. So because they saw that he was an encourager, everywhere he went, he was encouraging people. He had the gift of encouragement. And what a great gift to have. So much so that you would be called an encourager. There is no gift of discouragement, but I've seen Christians who think they've got it. They want to discourage everybody and anything that they're doing. They feel like they're supposed to go do something and there's discouragement rather than encouragement. And we want to endeavor to be encouragers. We want to encourage people to get closer to Christ, to walk with Jesus, for God to really use us. We want to be like Barnabas. Now, in verse 23, it says, when he had come and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. Now, does it shock anybody that the son of encouragement encourages them? That's what it says here, that he came and he saw them and he encouraged them. What was his encouragement? That with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. Many of them had just been saved. When you first give your life to Christ and you start following him, there's an excitement for Jesus and you want to learn more about him and you are just excited for him. And then over a period of time, that initial excitement wanes. And it's supposed to turn into a good, solid, faithful walk with Christ at which your love for him goes from an initial excitement that is genuine love for God, but into a deeper, more mature, committed love to him. I liken this to marriage. You meet your wife or your husband. You guys are engaged. You're in love. Everything's exciting. The sky's bluer. The birds are singing louder. The colors are brighter. But you realize this isn't going to happen forever. And if you didn't realize that, you begun to realize that at some point, that those things dropped off. Now, when that happens, one of two things can happen. Number one, as you guys get into what, what could be the marriage grind, and I'll talk about this in a moment, you either are faithful, committed to one another, helping one another, developing a deeper, genuine love that after so many years, 
you're going to say those dating days were great, but I prefer the deeper love that we have now. In both of my marriages, I lost my, my first wife to cancer. We were married very young. She was 19 years old and I was, I was 21 years old when we got married. And this will shock you, but our first few years were like, woo, it was, a, it was a little rough going on. I was a youth pastor of Calvary Albuquerque, but we just had expectations and, and it was just, but over a period of time, our love grew into something that was much deeper and more profound. The same thing is happening in my relationship with Kathy as well. We've been married for, well, this April will be nine years uh, that we've been married. And we've seen the same process that has taken place. Now, if when those first initial feelings drop off, you kind of feel like, well, no, this love isn't here anymore, and you don't work faithfully together, that deeper love doesn't get developed. This happened to the church at Ephesus, remember? In, Acts chap in Revelation chapter 2, and they left their first love. Rather than things maturing into a deep, abiding love with God, they had left it. And this is what is happening here. He's encouraging them that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. Look, things aren't always easy as a Christian. There's going to be difficulties. God tests us. The enemy attacks us. And so we're going to face hardship. But as we faithfully go through those things, the love for God becomes deeper and deeper. And this is what he was encouraging the church in Antioch to do. Then in verse 24, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. I love that it says that Barnabas was a good man. Inevitably, someone's going to say, no one's good but God. But we understand that next to God, no one's good. All of us have sinned, gone our own way. All of us are like sheep that go our own way. We all fall short of the glory of God. We understand that. But by human standards, there can be good men. Joseph of Arimathea was called a good man. Barnabas was called a good man. I think of Skip Heitzig, who was the one who planted our church back in 1985. Skip is the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Albuquerque. And when Skip comes out and sees what's happening here, Oftentimes, he'll pat me on the back and say, you're a good man, Robert Furrow. That's what he says to me. And I'm always like, well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, I hope so. I hope I'm a good man. But there can be someone who was good, and Barnabas was good. Why? It goes on. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Now, these two things. Full of the Holy Spirit is going to mean that not only was he an encourager, but the fruit of the Spirit was going to be there. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I've had people tell me, I'm, I'm, I'm a Spirit-filled believer. And they're angry and mean. <laughs> and that's not the fruit of the Spirit. You may deal with things that are necessary, but you're not going to be an angry, mean Christian full of the Holy Spirit. The, the fruit of the Spirit's going to be there. And so Barnabas had that. He was an encourager. He had that. Plus, he had faith. What's faith? Believing God's word enough to live like it's true. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so when you hear what God wants you to do, you step out and do it. Even if your heart says something to do that, that to do something different. Your heart can say to do one thing. The Bible says to do another. Faith is when you do what the Bible says. Why? Because the heart of man is desperately wicked. Because we've got to guard our heart. Comes out, out of it flows all the things of life. Because our heart can be deceptive and can, we can be deceived by our heart. God's word is faithful 
And we'll, when we do that, we're walking in faith. That was Barnabas. It goes on to say, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus and sought Saul. Literally, it says he went Saul hunting. That's what it says in the Greek. So Barnabas is here with these Hellenistic Gentiles and Hellenistic Jews. And, pro and I don't know how many Hebraic Jews. There are a lot of Hebraic Jews in Jerusalem. I don't know how many Hebraic Jews in Antioch. But he starts to think, who can I get to help me? And then he thinks, well, I know a Hellenistic Jew. Paul of Tarsus. Remember that Stephen debated the Hellenistic Jews and when they stoned him, they took off their jackets and they laid him at a feet of a young Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus. And so Barnabas says, I need to go find Saul. Now, here's the crazy thing. Saul gets saved in Damascus. He gets let down through a window because they want to kill him. He goes to the Arabian desert for three years. He goes to meet the apostles in Jerusalem. They won't meet with him. Barnabas brings them to him. And I wonder how that happened. If Barnabas didn't just show up to the disciples and say, hey guys, I brought Paul with me. And they're like, oh, we didn't want to see him. He ends up interacting with them, confirming that the gospel he's preaching is the same thing that they're preaching. And he talks about this in Galatians. He says, they added nothing to me. We were preaching the same thing. He knew if he was preaching something different, he would be wrong. And then he begins to debate with the Hellenistic Jews who put Stephen to death. And it causes this, this, again, persecution in Jerusalem. And so it says the apostles put him on a boat and sent him to Tarsus. The very next line says, and peace came to the region. <laughs> Once they got rid of Paul, peace came to the region. Now, this is 10 years after Paul's salvation, as near as we can figure. And you go, well, what's God doing? And why, would, why did Paul have to wait? We kind of don't get that when we're reading through the book of Acts. If we don't pay attention, we get the idea that Paul got saved and immediately started doing things. Here's why. The Bible says that if you're going to be a pastor, a bishop, or an elder, you're not to be a novice. And so God wasn't going to use Paul right away. He had to deepen his faith. He had to go through difficulties and struggles. God had to prepare him for what he was going to do. And so he would be somewhere around 10 years into the faith before he goes to Antioch and is used in a powerful way by God. And that, you look, if you're in that window, just faithfully serve God, faithfully grow. God will bring you to the point where God begins to use you in the way that God is going to use you. And so he, and then it says, verse 26, and when he had found him, so he finds him there, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that the whole year they assembled the church and taught a great many people. So now once Paul gets there, it grows even more. It grew before Barnabas got there. Barnabas got there, it grew. Now Paul gets there and it grows even more. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, it's believed that this was a pejorative term, meaning it was negative that they made fun of them. You Christians, it was a, a word to make fun of them. In fact, the etymology of the word is interesting. It's a mixture of a Greek and a Latin word. The Greek word would be Christionios. The Christ is from Messiah, right? Greek for Messiah is Christ. So we know that. And then the Ionios or I-A-N-O-S is a Latin section. Let me read this to you. And you'll, you'll get what it means. So it says the Greek word Christonios, meaning follower of Christ, 
comes from Christos, meaning anointed one, with an adjective ending borrowed from Latin to denote adhering to, even belonging to, as a slave or ownership. So in Latin, when you wanted to say that you had a baker who was a slave also, you added the ionios at the end. So it's a word for a slave. It's just the way that you did it there. The Greek word for slave is doulos. There's another word for slave. But this is if you had a doctor or you had a baker or you had someone who, who was working for you and you wanted to let them know that they were a slave also, you added this to the end. This is why they were making fun of Christians. Well, you are Christonios. You're Christ's servants. You're his slaves. You guys are slaves. And so that was negative. But the church took it on as something positive. And we see that by the time we get to 1 Peter. This is the last place we hear the word Christian in the New Testament. And here's what Peter said. This is 1 Peter 4, 15 and 16. But let none of you suffer. <laughs> Look at this broad thing that he tells them. He's writing to Christians. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. So don't be a murderer and don't be nosy. That's what he says. And it's really funny that he would go through such things. And then he says, yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, because they made fun of them with it, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of Christonios, that you're a servant of Christ. He says, but let him glorify, uh, but let him glorify God in this matter. When you're called a Christian to be glorified in it. So Christian became something that we have taken on ourselves, even though in the beginning it was meant as a pejorative term. Now in verse 27, we go on to find out what's happening in Antioch. It says in verse 27, and in these days, the prophet came to Jerusalem, to Antioch, then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Let's talk about Claudius Caesar first of all. Now, this is how we can date this. We know that this prophecy from Agabus happened before Claudius Caesar's reign, which was the early 40s. You had, you had Julius Caesar was still under the Republic. He wasn't an emperor. Then you had Augustus, who became the first emperor. After Augustus came Tiberius. Tiberius was the emperor that was around when Jesus was here. And then after Jesus' death, you had Caligula, who's still known as the crazy wild one, right? And then after Caligula died, his uncle Claudius became emperor. And he was an emperor for five or six years. So it was under Claudius that this happened. This is how we're dating how long Paul has already been a Christian by this point. Somewhere between seven and ten years because we know that Claudius is here when this happens. Now let's go back and talk about this prophet. So there's a prophet by the name of Agabus that shows up and tells people, God told me that there's going to be a famine. And there was a famine. And there were a lot of prophets in the early church that were not connected to fellowships. And part of being a prophet is you have to be right. And so in the early church, they wrote something called the Didache. If you've never heard of it, look it up. It was a, a, it was a writing that was sent out to the churches in a way that they could oversee traveling pastors and prophets. And one of the things that they said is if a, a pastor or prophet comes to you, 
and asks for money, then you know he's not a prophet. Now, I don't think that this is something that God was doing. I think this is their pact. I think all the prophets and, and, and traveling you know, ministers got together and said, look, we'll never ask for money when we go. And if anybody asks for money, you know it's not us. Because if we are genuine, we're not going to ask for money. So you would know that. Also, the prophets, it had to come true. So a few years ago, there were the Kansas City prophets. And they said, well, you know, if you get up to about 80% uh, correct rate in your prophecies, that's a good thing. I don't know where you get that in the Bible. Again, we're going to Second Opinions chapter 3 to find that. Because if you're going to prophesy, it needs to be true. And I've had a lot of people that have come and given me words over the years. Way back in the 80s, a guy came up to me after one of our services and said, God told me you guys aren't going to be a church in six months. And I said, will you do me a favor? Come back in six months. And if we're still here, admit that that was a false prophecy. And if we're gone, then you can be glad that you did it. We were still there. We still are here. This has been 30-something years ago. And I never heard from the guy again. It's easy to prophesy something out of your own desire or opinion rather than let it be from God. And the Bible says, don't despise prophecy, but let one prophesy and let the others judge. So when people come to me, and, and most of the time over the years that people have come to me, with I got a word of the Lord for you. Most often they've been negative. And some of them I've rejected right offhand. <clears throat> right offhand. Some of them I say, I say, I don't accept your prophecy. And they're always shocked when they do that. But the Bible says, let one prophesy and let the others judge. And when I'm hearing a prophecy from somebody and they're prophesying this horrible thing, I'm like, I'm not going to live under your prophecy. I reject that prophecy. I'm not going to live under that cloud of what you just said. I reject it. And we get to judge those, those things instead of just accepting it. Now, we're not to despise it because sometimes they've come and given me words that I know are from the Lord and that time shows out that they are from God. Then it goes on to say, finally, in verse 29, now remember, there's going to be a famine in the land. So what happens? Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now notice a couple of things here. When they hear there's going to be a famine, they know the people in Judea are suffering. They're being excommunicated from the temple. They're being removed from their synagogues. They're losing their daily livelihood because they're no longer a part of that community and people are not buying things from them anymore. And they, and they know they're going to suffer. This will not be the only gift gathered by the Gentile churches and brought to Judea. And notice also that they do it each according to their own ability. They weren't told to dig deep. They weren't told to go and, and put it on credit to be able to give. And I've heard so-called pastors do that. God will never ask you to give beyond your ability. And God wants you to give generously, but he wants you to give because you want to give. That's what the Bible says. It says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that when you give, don't give because you're compelled. Don't let anybody say, you dig deeper and you guys give. But, but give as you determine in your heart by your own ability. And don't feel bad if you don't have the ability to give a lot. And giving a little is not a problem because we're giving by faith. You say, well, if I only give a little bit, it's not going to do very much. That's not the issue. 
The issue is that you have been given by God and now you give out of your ability to be able to help those who are struggling. Remember the rich man who lived in luxury and the poor man who sat at his gate and the dogs licked his wounds and then they both died on the same day and Abraham talks to them both in, in Hades and the rich man's in torment and the poor man's in comfort and Abraham says, you had your luxury in your day and now you're in torment. He had his, his torment on earth and now he's in comfort. So what is he trying to say there? That's so different than what we would think is being said. They don't go to heaven. You don't go to, to, to comfort or torment based on whether or not you got money. What was he saying? The rich man ha lived in luxury, had a man living at his gate and wouldn't even help the man at his gate. How far do you have to go to help a man at your gate? But he continued to live in luxury and wouldn't even help him. As Christians, this is what we do. As Christians, we help people. Listen to what Jesus said in Mark 9, 41. For whoever gives a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose your reward. Even a cup of water given in the name of Christ, you will not lose your reward. He didn't say you have to give a, you know, a certain amount of money, but a cup of water. Who can't give a cup of water to someone who's thirsty? He goes on to say in uh, Matthew 25, 40, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. This is what Christians do. We help those in need. So many funds, orphanages, Christians help according to their own ability. It's been done so much throughout the ages that there's no way for us to point it out. The neo-atheists or the new atheists like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris will say things like, no one's done anything to hurt the earth more than Christians. The opposite is true. No one's done more to help with widows and orphans and hospitals and people that need help than Christians. Because that's in our DNA as believers. It's what we do. When we hear someone is in need, we want to help them. Now we get some guidelines. Jesus said, give and it will be given unto you. Pressed down, shaken together and running over. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 9, it says, if you give sparingly, you receive sparingly. If you give abundantly, you receive abundantly. These aren't here to appeal to your greed. That's what I heard preachers say, the more you give, the more you get. You want to be rich, rich then dig deep. They've missed the whole point. God's saying it's okay to be generous. God's going to honor you if you are, but you still give within your ability. You don't hurt what you need to take care of your family, each other, but you give out of what your ability is and you give generously knowing that God is going to give back to you as he promised. This is what God wants from us and it becomes something that is very powerful for us when we do it, that God honors it. And they do it here, and I believe that we are supposed to do it in our day. Now, three things in closing. Number one, don't forget we follow the long-promised and awaited Messiah, and we are his servants. You haven't invited Jesus into your life so he can make your life better. The self-help Jesus is never taught in Scripture. You want to receive Jesus into your life? He's going to make your life better. Your life will be a whole lot better if you re receive Jesus. No, he said, you're going to have trouble as a Christian. You're going to have persecution. There's going to be problems. We are disciples. 
We're to lay down our lives. We're to pick up our cross and we're to follow him. We're to deny ourselves. That's what being a Christian is really all about. We serve and we follow him. And, and, and when we give you an opportunity to give your life to Christ, that's the opportunity we're giving to you. That you would say, I'm ready to sacrifice. I'm ready to lay down my life. I'm ready to, to die for him tomorrow if I start living for him today because my life is his and he's my master and I am his servant. Number two, let's be the son of encouragement to as many people as we can. I could give you a motto to live by. If you don't have one, I'll give you one to adopt. And that is be a blessing to people wherever you go. Are people blessed when they interact with you? Is the waitress blessed when she interacts with you? This food's wrong. She's already having a bad day. I'm giving her a buck for a tip. Be a blessing where you can, anytime you can, at any, at any point you can. That would be the son of encouragement. And I believe that's what God wants from us. How much more then when we plant seeds and we water seeds are people going to be willing to hear that? if we aren't the opposite of that, where we make people's lives miserable everywhere we go. None of you guys would do that. I'm not suggesting it. I realize that. Number three, let's be generous to help those who are in need according to our ability. Number one, look for areas to help, like what we're doing with the Joshua Fund or, or, or the Salvation Army that helps the homeless in Tucson. And, and they need to be helped in Tucson today. I, I have a, a good friend of mine who pastors of the church on the street. They provide housing for people that are on the street. And there's just a lot going on there. They just have more phone calls, there are more people than what they can take. And we wanna be able to help those organizations out. But God's gonna bring people to your gate. And when God brings someone to your gate that's in need, then help them out of your ability. If you're living in luxury, then great, like the rich man, but help them out of the ability that you have, and God will honor us for that. And in doing so, we become like Christ. And didn't Jesus say this about the sheep? I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and in prison and you visited me. When did we see you? Hungry and naked and, 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 and thirsty and sick and in prison. When you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to be able to cover this amazing church in Antioch who's going to be the sending church for Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey and how these Hellenistic Gentiles came to you and Gentiles and Jews worked together to do the work that you had called them to do. And I pray that we would be faithful doing the work that you've called us to do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.